Hey everybody, it's Whitney. We recorded this episode, which is titled Everybody Hates Joe, on Sunday, June 18th. On June 20th, the news broke that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, had pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor charges of failing to pay taxes on time, though he did in the end pay those taxes, and one felony charge for violating a federal statute making it illegal to possess a gun while being, quote, an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance. Those charges were brought by a federal prosecutor who was appointed by President Trump in 2018 and has been investigating Hunter Biden ever since. This is what he came up with. Hunter Biden has pleaded guilty to these charges. President Biden did not replace the prosecutor, end or intervene in the investigation. He has not contested the findings. If you want to listen to Hunter Biden news, there's a lot of it out there. But Sugi and I think that our excellent discussion with about Joe Biden and his electoral prospects with our guest, Jacinda Townsend, is a lot more substantial. And with that, I'll send you on to the show. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So wait, who's your favorite U.S. president? I can't believe I haven't asked you this before. <laughs> I don't, it's not something that I go around, sit around thinking about, but what are your like terms, you know, like my, in terms of policy, who I like best or who seemed coolest? I mean, you know me, I, I, I think that there's a lot of overlap there. So Between maybe coolness and policy? I think they're, they're the opposite. <laughs> so thing. both. Let's All go right, for both. So, uh, come on. I mean, presidents are usually a mixed bag. They're never perfect, uh, especially when it comes to policy. And it's really rare to find one that's unambiguously great. I mean, Abraham Lincoln might be the person who qualifies the most. And and he got assassinated. It's true that great policy moves don't always make you popular. Um, Sometimes it's even the opposite. The Affordable Care Act drove Barack Obama's approval numbers way down for a while, just for example. Although it's more popular now than ever, and uninsured Americans are nearing an all-time low. This deep unfairness of doing good things and having people hate you for it. Um, It's amazing how that works. Uh, Speaking of this issue and presidential popularity, how are you feeling about Joe Biden these days? I think it will not shock you to know that I'm not thrilled with Biden, but he's doing better than the president who died after 30 days because he caught pneumonia giving a two-hour inaugural address in the freezing cold. He's no William Henry Harrison. Okay. Now, all right, look, this is the kind of thing that I am talking about, all right? Look, I was a Bernie person. I voted for Bernie in the primaries, but I'm glad Biden won uh, against Trump. I am, I'm looking at Biden's record. I'm looking at the economy. I'm looking at what he's done to support clean energy and student loans and protect entitlement programs and his Supreme Court nominee. These are real accomplishments, and the best that Democrats like you and us can say about him is that he's better than some old dead guy, even older than him. Why does everybody hate Joe? We're going to talk that over with Jacinda Townsend. Jacinda is a former journalist and lawyer turned public official and novelist, a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Jacinda spent a year as a Fulbright Fellow in Côte d'Ivoire. Her debut novel, Saint Monkey, won the 2015 Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize in her most recent novel, Mother Country, was the 2022 winner of the Ernest Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Welcome, Jacinda. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you and Sugi. It's a treat to have you with us. Um, So Biden's poll numbers are inarguably low. 
A recent Harvard Caps Harris poll showed that 45% of You say that with such port- joy in your voice, Sugi. Come on. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. I'm, jonesing, I'm jonesing for a fight in this conversation. A, a recent Harvard Caps Harris poll showed that 45% of respondents would vote for Trump over Biden, with only 39% supporting Biden. You, I'm not taking any joy in that. 15% were unsure. Trump just got indicted. I am taking joy in that. For the second time, um, after being impeached twice... Biden has had zero scandals in his administration, unless you count the ones that are like concocted by the Pizzagate types. Um, He's created 13 million jobs more than any other president in a four year term. He passed the CHIPS Act. He passed the Inflation Reduction Act. He passed a bipartisan extension of the debt ceiling. So what gives with people's take on Biden? Well, what is the CHIPS Act? I don't even know what the what's the CHIPS Act? So the CHIPS Act provided $280 billion in funding to boost manufacturing of semiconductors. Um, you may be able to say more about this, but no, it's, it's like, like going to bring. Yeah, I mean, it takes it's bring fabrication, semiconductor fabrication plants back to the United States. So manufacturing jobs, basically, largely in the Midwest, like and Illinois. It, and about 800,000 jobs. Is it 800,000 jobs? Yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself a reasonably informed person. I don't even know what the CHIPS Act is. I do know enough to know that semiconductors died in the late 80s. Um, And my point being, I think, you know, one reason I I have my own whole laundry list of reasons um, why Joe Biden has not necessarily lived up to his promise and certainly has not undone any of the harm he had previously done as a lawmaker. But I think he's... um, Oh, I hate to use this word, but I think he has a pretty snoozy agenda uh, delivery there. So (laughs) what do you mean by agenda delivery? You mean like he's not popularizing what he's done well enough or that the things themselves are not interesting? I would say both. I mean, I think, you know, the for for our generation, certainly the most important thing he's probably done um, is, you know, handle student loan forgiveness, right? But that would be an example of one that he's politically going to pay for. Um, you know, there's so many people on the right, certainly, and in, even in the center, who do not do not find that to be um, necessarily, you know, the, the policy of their dreams or whatever. But I think the other the other part of the equation is that there is no, um, I, I mean, for example, even with with the student loan forgiveness program being sort of one of the most important things he's done, um, there were people who had student loans who didn't even know this was going on. You know, um, I'm just not seeing like from this White House I don't see the same enthusiasm as I've seen from other White Houses um, in terms of, you know, spreading the word, um, whipping up fervor. The the most important part of a presidential office is like the power of rhetoric. Um, and I don't think Joe Biden is a guy who who has much. But I'm going to get into why when he did, this wasn't a great thing anyway. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay, I I agree that he's not been a great com- communicator, certainly not as good a speaker as Obama, who was his former boss in essence. Um, but I do want to point out, like, I do think these things that he's done are, I still think, I think they're good. I mean, 
Broadband for Rural America, $714 million in grants for that. I wrote an article about Harper's about the difficulty of getting broadband in, in, in rural spaces. I think that's really important. Um, and, and all the, you know, he putting all this money toward um, renewable energy jobs that, that that's going to be part of the Inflation Reduction Act. That's a huge deal. And it's really unfortunate that he's not communicating that because, I mean, it is really, as far as I, when I read it, it seems like a groundbreaking piece of legislation in terms of clean energy and also reducing drug costs. You know, um, he's allowing people to negotiate for drug costs for the first time. That's all. Those are all seem like accomplishments. And yet, again, I can't argue with his poll numbers. So wait, I'm curious, like when you, I mean, so this episode was to be upfront with our listeners, Whitney's idea. And um, I'm curious, like kind of when you think about um, Joe Biden not getting enough credit, like all of the stuff that you put in here that is like credit for Joe Biden, like, did you have to go digging for that? Or were you like casually sitting around being like that Chips Act is awesome? Well, like, I'm, gonna, how, I'm just Liz. First of all, I didn't know about these things, but these facts are coming from Liz Schroeder, our intern who prepared the first draft of this. So, I mean, I can't. I'll have to ask her. Like, I, but I think I think it's pretty easy to if you type in Inflation Reduction Act, you can get an an article from the New York Times that says what's in it. You know. Um, sure. Now, I guess I'm thinking of like what happens if you Google Biden accomplishments. Um, those things come and, up. I did do that in my distracted writer googling. <laughs> I don't use okay. Google though. <laughs> use DuckDuckGo. Like a good Bernie person, I don't want the big tech people to have my search uh, stuff. Uh, I just look, I'm scared about Biden not winning the presidency. It will be devastating if he doesn't, you know? Anyway, all right. Um, let's move on. I, I've made my case for the good things that he's done. Uh, uh, I don't think Biden would have won the presidential primary without support from the black community and particularly Representative Clyburn from South Carolina who supported him. Uh, famously, and helped him win the primary there after he had lost in, in prior primaries. Um, when he took office, Biden had an 82% approval rate from black voters. It's down to 52%. He can't win without this constituency. Why has Biden failed to maintain the support he used to receive from the black community, and what does he have to do to get it back? Well, I mean, I have no idea why he ever got so much support from the black community to begin with, except that we seem to have poor memories as an ethnicity. And I always joke, like I'm black, I'm not BIPOC because, you know, but maybe that's one of the characteristics that separates us from the rest of the IPOC is that we just seem to forget everything. And I guess when I think about the harm that this man has done over the course of the last, you know, 40 years, I think whatever little small drops of mitigation he's put in the water haven't been enough. He's certainly, um, I, I would argue, you know, there are, there are three main things that he actively did that harmed the black community. And, and probably perhaps I would say the three main ways in which the black community has been historically harmed. The main thing is he was the main sponsor of the anti-busing amendment in 1975. And we all know, you know, we we have these quotes. He didn't want his kids growing up in a quote racial jungle. He was um, in bed with Jesse Helms on that. 
He also, as we all know, was the primary supporter. He cl- he claimed in um, during the campaign that he wrote it, actually, was the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. Um, and we saw, you know, how that affected mass incarceration. Um, the increase in Black and Latino prisoners was, was you know, astronomical. Um, and then also... I mean, he, you know, it, it's it's kind of like this, like, so this is a guy who during the campaign um, is saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, but he's also the guy who helped put like hundreds of thousands of extra police officers on the street. And until I see some pretty concrete mitigation for that kind of harm, I'm just not... Um, I, I'm just not here to offer him the black vote. I mean, black black people notoriously also are pretty content to go along with a party that doesn't, frankly, do much for them. Um, but that I I think that's too bad, honestly. Um, and I was yeah, I, I was Bernie till the end. My family shed actual tears that the nominee was Joe Biden. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. So, I mean, the points that you make about Biden's past history are, you know, irrefutable and and obviously true. And, you know, that that, that crime bill that he was involved in was terrible. Um, and... Okay, but he's here, and you you were mentioning like unless you could see some efforts toward mitigation that would be realistic and meaningful, other than I understand like appointing a Supreme Court justice who's a black woman is good, but that's not that's also a figurehead kind of thing to do. It's easy, right? So what would be what would be real kinds of mitigation that uh, an administration like his could take? Well, let's look at one thing that I think is near and dear to our hearts here in Michigan and probably Minnesota. Are you in Minnesota as well, Whitney? I'm in Kansas City. Okay, not so near and dear to your heart. Yeah, but, (laughs) and this is um, the decriminalization of marijuana, the legalization of, um, you know, dispensaries in cities. So I'll give you a I'll give you an example. And here in Michigan, where, you know, a good part, a good percentage of people in prison are there because of marijuana offenses. A good percentage of those people, as we know, are Black and Latino. There is exactly one Black-owned, Black-woman-owned dispensary in this entire state. There was a Black-woman-owned dispensary in our city, actually. She was harassed by city officials. She was harassed by the corporate, um, you know, what I call the corporate weed dealers, these people like jars who are on every corner, right? The city of Detroit set up its legislation around dispensaries to make it incredibly hard for people to get into the business unless they have corporate money. So um, it costs $300,000 in the state of Michigan to get uh, to get your dispensary license. Um, so, you know, in, in addition to, there was this promise to federally decriminalize that we haven't seen, but we need some real movement around things that are not just symbolic and not even just 
decriminalizing, but also restoring wealth in the Black community. I mean, this is somebody whose policies, um, I could go on and on, the, 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 even just, you know, school desegregation was something, because school desegregation drives residential desegregation. So this was something he did to um, Black wealth, you know what I mean? Um, uh, sort of creating a bill that mass incarcerated so many Black men in this country that destroyed Black wealth. So the kind of things that the Black community needs right now are like economic development, um, things that address economic development. Um, and so, you know, until I see more of that, I'm not going to be that impressed with him. That's interesting because, you know, the the things, some of the things that I'm talking about, like the CHIPS Act, I'd have to see where those factors are going to be, but um, I don't imagine them being in black majority cities, you know, uh, so maybe that, I mean, that, you know, that's an issue. I can see why that would, why that would be like, okay, well, that's nice that like rural Indiana is going to get a factory, but that's not really helping, helping the constituency that we're talking about here. Okay, I understand. So Biden isn't just failing to generate enthusiasm from black voters, but he's he's also having problems with another purportedly core Democratic constituency, which I think we're, we're kind of wobbling with in some places, young people. In your novel, Mother Country, one of the main characters, Shannon, has significant student debt, um, which is, of course, a major issue for young voters. So I wonder if you could read a passage from the book about that. Sure. Um, so this is a passage from early on in the book when we find out just how much student loan and medical debt um, my character has going. She's in her late 20s. And it's a letter. The University of Kentucky's financial aid office has been notified that the current status of your student loan is default. Who sends the default notification? Notification comes from any of the agencies that track student loan history. Shannon found herself unable to breathe. When excised from its envelope and unfolded, the letter wouldn't let her. They were adding a 25% collection fee to her student loan balance, the letter said. She now owed $112,520.37, due immediately. She tried to reread the individual letters blurred, danced within their words. She looked at the blank wall and saw the projected film of her future, now dashed against the rocks. She looked back down at the letter, smoothed it on the table, then picked it up again to tear it to bits, tiny bits of confetti she might throw at a parade. Now she took the tiny bits of Sally Mae's letter, put them in her mouth, and swallowed them in one fierce, mulchy gulp. She tried to breathe while thoughts of her future exploded in her head. What remained were days of penury, She'd cart her cheap groceries onto public transportation in a metal basket. She'd shuffle into a court in a tunic from Walmart, listen to the judge sentence her to debtor's prison. Thank you very much. So, I mean, that was very graphic and, and sort of, a, I like that moment when she just eats the student loan. Uh, but, and, you know, I think, I think in the book, it's like she starts off with $45,000 in loans and it gets to one hundred and twenty five, which is this incredibly terrible way of growing and, you know, just destroying people's lives. Um, Biden has proposed a program that would forgive up to $20,000 in student loans, which wouldn't be enough for her, uh, for an estimated 40, 000, 40 million federal student loan borrowers. There's a lot of complications in that. We can't go through all of them here, but. Uh, it has been challenged by Republicans and, and the Supreme Court should rule on the issue soon. What do you think about this program? 
Well, it it is an it is an example of what exactly I was talking about because um, I'm pretty sure Joe Biden. I would have to fact check fact check this, but I'm pretty sure he is one of the people who um, passed the law making bankruptcy inapplicable to student loans, wasn't he? It, it, there were some people on board with that who would surprise us all, I think. But we all know what that did um, to borrowers. You know, it, it's like if you went out and bought a Porsche and declared bankruptcy, you could do that. But if you were a poor to middle class student who went to college and took out a loan and you weren't found yourself unable to pay that back, then you could never wipe that debt clean. Um, so 60% of student loan debtors in this country are women. Um, there is a, a very disproportionate amount of student loan debtors right now who are of color. Um, and so, you know, it's like to, to, to fix that, to lop off even $20,000, because for some people that might be their entire loan, right? Um, so to lop off even that small of an amount would make a huge difference for, for some of the constituencies that he has harmed in the past, but also some of the constituencies who just plain need our help. I think that, um, you know, he, like many Democratic presidents, have not necessarily lived up to the ideal of the Democratic Party in that, um, you know, we're we're not here to sort of foster the economic division that was created during the Reagan years. Um, it, it has, and if you look at any chart of this, that disparity actually widened under every single Democratic president, right? Um, and so I'm looking for people who are going to sort of reverse that trend. We haven't had that yet. We haven't had that since Jimmy Carter, you know? You, you asked at the beginning who would be your favorite president. I say, we haven't had a real guy since Jimmy Carter. <laughs> I liked Carter. He was the president of my childhood. Yes. All, the main thing I remember is that my dad tur turned down the thermostat all the time because Jimmy Carter told him to. <laughs> That's not a great memory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So the June IBD tip poll shows that 40% of Americans age 18 and up approve of how Biden is handling the presidency and 51% disapprove. Biden's net approval rating of negative 11 points is a big step down from negative six in May when 43% approved and 49% disapproved. The prior two months, voters were split 45%, 45%. Is his student loan program not enough? Or if student debt isn't the issue motivating young voters, what is? That is a very good question. Um, I have an 18-year-old and a 13-year-old, and I will tell you, I'll tell you what they're anxious about is very different from what I'm anxious about, right? Um, you guys have heard me talk a lot in this hour about, um, you know, economic development in minority communities. They just kind of want the earth to survive <laughs> long enough for them to be my age, right? Um, I think they think about that all the time. I think they feel pretty doomed about it. Um, you know, and it and yet it is something that again, and I'm not saying, you know, it, it's interesting because Joe Biden has in some ways delivered on on that, but it's 
It's pretty quiet. I mean, I don't think he's going to be known as the president who did X or the president who did Y. I don't think he'll be like, you know, this is the guy who delivered us Obamacare or, um, you know, this is that guy. I, I just, I, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, he, he just has not connected, I think in a way, particularly to young people um, that prior presidents have. Um, I can't believe I'm sitting here excusing him just on the basis of his poor communication, but, but it is partially that. Maybe it's just also, we haven't talked about, he is old. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't, yes. uh, to me, it doesn't, it's, I guess if, when I think about him being like the age of my parents and imagine my parents being president, that is difficult to, I'm just trying to ignore it. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because one thing it means, and I think this was obvious during the campaign trail, is that he would um, he would sort of, when asked about his problematic positions in the past, say, that was a product of its time. My participation was a product of my time, right? And could never really, when pressed on a particular thing he had said, could never really gain regain his footing, right? There were no sort of, um, there. The, I, I can't think of many instances where he was forced to backtrack like that in a way that convinced anybody. And in fact, sometimes the gaffe became worse when he tried to <laughs> explain it, you know? Um, it was a bad feature of his campaign. I remember him being asked about the crime bill that, that he passed with Clinton and being defensive about it instead of just saying, I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. He he, should, it, he's not he, good at that. Yeah. Everything was a product of its time, um, which, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, okay, when young people look at that, and what you see is, okay, you, you see a guy who's being accused, you know, by the worst of us as somebody who's so old, he's maybe doesn't have all of his faculties. But when you see someone who has such a lack of reflection that he can't even bring today into the equation in his response and say, I'm sorry, and say that was wrong, you know, and say, well, in fact, there were people in 1994 who were telling me this was wrong. Um, that's a problem. And that's not going to connect with people my kids age either, certainly. Um, so that's interesting. I I do hate that very much, like the the kind of product of their time, because you can always find in whatever time, like you can find people during like the era of enslavement who were freeing their slaves. Um, you can find people who were fighting for, uh, you know, enfranchisement for a larger population. You can you can always find that person. Um, on the other hand, when I think about who is someone who has apologized and then done well, I feel like the era of like, there, maybe I feel like it was easier to apologize before. And now if you apologized that maybe it would be the sort of thing that people would seize upon and maybe try to use to eat you alive. I don't know if that's, I'm speculating a little bit here, but like, I mean, I don't think he would be a good apologizer. <laughs> the He's a terrible, yeah. He's a terrible apologizer. And I, I, I think to me, CDT, it's beyond people because we, we, we have, you're right. You're absolutely right. We have had, a lot of people who've said, I'm sorry, and then been completely skewered 
in any case. Right. But he says, he says, I'm sorry. And then he says things like, um, what was this quote? It was awful. He said that the, when he was asked about slavery and he had made this comment in 1970, he says, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today. I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. So when asked about that, he says, he goes into his whole, you know, school desegregation thing. And he's like, we need to make sure we bring in to help the teachers deal with the problems that come from home. It's crazy. The teachers have every problem coming to them, not daycare school. We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. Then he says, it's not that they don't want to help. They don't know quite what to do, right? Um, and then he doubled down into some other stuff. So he, you know, to me, that smacks of a person who understands the optics of the situation, understands that they need to try to explain themselves, but still has, still has 1994 very much in the mind, in the pudding, you know, and can't, can't properly do it soon. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. I don't disagree with all of these things. Uh, however, it's really going to suck if he doesn't win presidency because I know he, he's going to win the nomination. I don't think anyone else is going to run against him. And I know that the alternative is definitely worse. And I understand this is probably his primary campaign strategy. It can't be his only campaign strategy. He has to do something. And that's some of the things that's why we're having this episode to talk about what things he might do that might actually win over the groups that he needs to win in order to win the election. So I did do a little procrastinating writer, internet searching, and came up with an article from 2019 from U.S. News and World Report that the headline reads, Young Voters Not Excited About Joe Biden. Citing a poll saying that Biden has a support of 6% of Democratic voters, 18 to 49, which sounds bad. But then the Democrats ended up, went on and did very well in the primaries that year. I mean, what are the chances that he can somehow overcome or rally support? Or do you not want him to in the end? I mean, you know how it is for us Democrats. It always depends on who's running against him, right? Uh-huh. Um, we don't know who that is right now. I know Chris Christie. <laughs> I feel like Chris Christie is the least of a, a the le- the the least but of a joke they have going right now. Uh, what do you guys think? Who who do you guys think it might be? On the who will save him? Yes, because <laughs> that's oh, going to be who saves our 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 king here, right? That's who that's, they run. That's true. That's true. Well, I, mean, I think Trump's going to run. I think yeah. he'll win the nomination. I think it's going to be Biden versus Trump again. Oh, gosh. I feel physically ill hearing that. Are you not? So, do you not understand? You know this is going to happen. I know. That's going to be different. That's not preventing me from feeling physically ill. Um, okay. I guess there was a brief period of time where I thought and thought but did not hope that it might be Ron DeSantis. Um, I think he's worse than Trump. I mean, I, th- I think he is, too. I also think he would lose to Biden. Um, like, he's a safer... He, that's a safer... I mean, a weirdly a safer situation than 
than Trump versus Biden. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chris Christie, I feel like that guy does not, he doesn't have, he doesn't have the charisma. Um, I feel to, I mean, I know Mike Pence declared, um, also does not have the charisma. People are just going to make jokes about him eating with, eating dinner with mother. Um, and I'm just at, is this person an authoritarian or not? Are they literally going to try to end democratic ideas or not? You know, that's sort of what I'm voting on. And, and they have all gone far farther to the right, you know? Um, so maybe there's hope. So an interesting, like, of course, historical constituency in, in this whole um, support of Trump conversation is women, specifically white women. But in your book, Mother Country, um, you examine motherhood through two separate perspectives, one Western, one Mauritanian. And obviously the character of Surya, her story is a bit more harrowing than Shannon's. Their lives are both informed and framed by struggles over gender and the culture around them. And you wrote a great article for Lit Hub, which we will link to in our show notes, about the importance of running for office as a single woman. Um, you are an elected official in addition to being a novelist, a lawyer, so many things. Um, women voters in general will also be a very important force in this election, especially after the Dobbs decision. How do you think Biden is faring with women? Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. That is a good question. I mean, we have the Supreme Court appointment. We have, um, I, I, you know, one thing that happened in um, this last election is that people were so mobilized. Like in Michigan, we had Prop 3. Um, I don't know if you how much you know about it, but it was basically going to um, restrict uh, reproductive rights um, in a pretty magnificent way. And that that brought women to the polls in droves. I think, um, you know, gener my general answer would be, I think in this environment where reproductive rights are continually in peril in so many states, um, I think, you know, we, we, we may be able to count on ourselves to be mobilized. Um, I think whatever is driving those Trump women, I'm sure they're still just as driven. I mean, in fact, I know. Um, so when I ran for school board, I ran in the last election. Conservative groups in the state of Michigan alone had put between 10 to $20 million into school board elections. So there oh are God. some pretty unhappy, uh, you know, mostly white women who are trying to drive progressives out of um, certainly local politics. And, you know, as we know, those people also drive, I, I think local politics is much more driven by a presidential election, but those people also help drive, you know, the, the sort of uh, sense of malcontent in a place, right? Um, so they're still there, you know? So, of course, we're referencing here the fact that you ran for and were elected to the Ann Arbor Public Schools Board of Education. How has that experience changed the way that you think about politics and, and has it changed at all the way you think about writing? Both, both actually. Um, so it's, it's been, it's been really interesting and it's been some of the, the sort of quickest growing up that I've ever had to do because I wasn't just suddenly elected to a school board in a city to which I had moved the year previously. 
but then was elected president of that school board. And it is a massive school district. Um, I mean, we have a $300 million budget, you know, 4,000 employees, 18,000 students, a billion dollar bond. So it, it was a lot. Um, and one thing I learned really quickly is that, um, gosh, it takes so many people on the inside and the outside of a system to move a needle one little bit, you know? And I guess that's why I put so much um, sort of burden on Joe Biden in terms of his like delivery of rhetoric. You know what I mean? I mean, we saw Trump, we got to hand it to him. He mobilized people in a way that they had not been mobilized in a long, long time. You know what I mean? Almost everything that came out of his mouth was designed to push a needle just completely across a record. You know what I mean? And in some ways, unfortunately, it did. I think we've seen that that fervor has carried on to many, many things, including it's trickled down to school board. I mean, we had, um, you know, and Sugi knows this, Ann Arbor is an incredibly progressive city um, in a county that's pretty much always goes blue. But we had two conservatives in our field of candidates um, and the things that they were saying, I could tell were coming right out of the Moms of Liberty manual. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm assuming they had plenty of funding. They lost pretty handily, thank goodness. But, um, you know, those those people are there. So I, I learned that. I learned just how I wish and I wrote that article. It's funny. I wrote that article before I was elected. And one thing that the article that I talked about in this article is that um, when people ask men to run for public office, they almost always say yes. When people ask women, they almost always say no. When people ask women of color or single mothers or people with intersectional identities, they almost always, even more so, are going to say no. Um, and I've been trying to recruit people actually for school board and it's it breaks down along those lines, you know, but we need those people. We need so many more. We need artists. And, and you asked how it's impacted my writing. I mean, one thing I talked about on the campaign trail was that I was the only artist in the field of 13 candidates. Um, I was the only person making my living in the arts. Um, you know, how important arts education was to the K-12, the whole K-12 landscape, that sort of thing. But, you know, so few of us ever run for public office in general. I know only two writers who have one, and they both lost, unfortunately, one ran for state legislature, the other ran for, I think, city council. But we need so many more of us for so many reasons. You know, we complain about the arts infrastructure in this country, but we don't really attend to it politically. Um, like the NEA should be a sacred cow and it often isn't. Um, we saw during the Trump administration, it certainly wasn't, you know, um, but we need, we need people who think like us. We need people who can actually like dream because let me tell you, there aren't that many people in local and state politics. You know, there are a lot of people who want to sort of take the status quo and continue it and do it in such a way that it looks good to voters four years later. But there aren't a lot of us who can actually sort of systematically think about like invention. Um, so that's my plug for you all need to run for something. <laughs> 
can only I can only think of writers who are politicians other than you uh, outside of the United States, like Mario Vargas Llosa or somebody like that, you know, in, in Peru. Um, thank you, Jacinda, so much for joining us and talking this over with us. And we encourage readers to go pick up Mother Country, which is out now. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!